0: You know, for about a year now, uh, Christianity Today has produced a popular podcast called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill." And if you don't know Mars Hill, uh, Mars Hill Church, I should say, uh, it was a very well-known church in the U.S., um, based in Seattle. It was led by a pastor named Mark Driscoll, and uh, he started Mars Hill in 1996, just as a small group Bible study, maybe a little bit smaller than our um, gathering here tonight. But over the years, by 2013, that little group had grown into a church of uh, a weekly attendance of 12,000 people, and they had a worldwide influence through the internet, a very cutting edge uh, sort of a church, and uh, then 2014 came, and there were a few issues And by the end of the year, that church of a weekly attendance of 12,000 people came to a crashing end. And on the very last day of 2014, they disbanded the whole thing. It came to to nothing. And naturally, a lot of people wanted to know what happened. Uh, It was a very well-known church, and yet for it to crash like that, there was a lot of interest. And so Christianity Today, they have produced this podcast looking into what went wrong, Okay, the rise and then the fall of Mars Hill Church. And uh, I did know about Mars Hill over those years. I occasionally listened to some of their sermons, and as an outsider looking in, it seemed to be a a fairly solid Bible-believing church. And yet when you listen to the podcast about what went wrong, you hear story after story of bullying and uh, spiritual abuse from the uh, leaders, uh, and one in particular... And the tipping point seemed to be some allegations of plagiarism uh, when it came to um, some book writing. And uh, in the end, though, what the podcast points out is that it was the character flaws of the lead pastor himself that led to the crash, that led to the whole thing collapsing. And the irony was that all the way through, anyone on the inside, they were aware of the character flaws. It was plain and obvious yet everyone overlooked it because of the apparent success of what was going on around them, because of the influence this guy had. People would just overlook uh, the bullying that took place. And so you could see from the podcast that the whole thing was just a tragedy in motion. It was destined to fail even from the beginning because of the problems with um, the leadership. And as it is with Mars Hill, So it is with the kingship of Saul in 1 Samuel. Uh, Saul's kingship, it's just started out in chapter 13, and yet almost straight away you can see that this too is going to be a tragedy in motion because there are cracks appearing right from the outset. Uh, There are problems with the man at the centre, with Saul himself. And so you get these hints all the way through uh, these two chapters that we're looking at tonight that there is some major problems with King Saul, that he's not going to be uh, the king that uh, would honour God. And uh, that's, these two chapters, they, they help us to see that. Because okay? by the end of 1 Samuel, Saul's kingship, he's going to come to a crashing halt. But uh, early on we get to see why, what the issues were. And it was to do with his character. And the way these two chapters get that across Uh, It uses the teaching method of um, contrast. So Saul's character is contrasted with the character of someone else. And in this case, the the someone else is his own son, Jonathan. So chapters 13 and 14 are about Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan is the man of faith. Saul is the man of folly. So there's three scenes in these two chapters... And uh, they each display this contrast. So let's just look at them. So the first scene is in chapter 13. And uh, (laughs) I've got competition. (laughs) Uh, The first scene, so it starts, if you have a look at verse 1 of chapter 13, uh, Saul lived for one year, then became king, and he'd reigned for two years. Uh, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and uh, a 1,000 were with Jonathan in, um, Benja- in Gibeah of Benjamin, the rest of the people he sent home. But then in verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, that was at Agiba, and the Philistines heard of it. So this, this is the beginning of Saul's reign as king. And you would expect to hear Saul you know, getting into action, dealing with the enemies who were constantly threatening Israel, the Philistines, and yet it's not Saul who's taking the initiative, it's Jonathan. And so straight away you start to ask questions. Why, why is it Jonathan? Why not Saul? And then uh, in verse 4, if you look at verse 4 there, it says that all Israel heard about um, this victory. But it says that they heard that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. So Jonathan was the one who did it, and yet the media report said Saul did it. Now why is that? Was Saul taking the credit for something Jonathan achieved? Anyway, Jonathan, uh, he started up this war, and it leads to all of the Philistines getting together and coming after Israel. And they have thousands of Of troops, it's like the the troops are like the sand on the seashore. Uh, So Israel are completely outnumbered, and we learn that apart from Saul and Jonathan, Israel have no weapons. So there they are; they've got this enormous army after them, and they're just standing there with sticks or whatever they could find. And Saul, uh, he runs and hides along with all of the um, army. And verse seven says that everyone was trembling. But then we find out there's a problem. There's a problem with Saul. It's not just that he doesn't inspire confidence in his army, but in verses 8 to 15, we realise that Saul has a major character flaw. Uh, It says in verse 8 that he was meant to wait for Samuel for seven days. Okay, And uh, apparently Samuel was going to get there. He was going to give Saul instructions from God about this battle. And he was going to... Um, bring God's blessing through offering a sacrifice and it gets to the seventh day and Samuel doesn't show up and so uh, Saul starts to get anxious as do many other people some of his troops start running away uh, Saul he stresses out and you can imagine how he felt it's like if you've ever been at a um, train station uh and what you know to meet a friend, to get on a train together and go somewhere, and you've got a deadline to make. And as the train's pulling into the station, you realize your friend hasn't turned up already. And so what do you do? Do you get on the train and make sure you catch your deadline, or do you wait for your friend and then be late? And so you've got this decision to make, but there's no time to make the decision. You've just got to act. And that's really what Saul was doing. Here he was thinking that the Philistines are going to come and attack them, His troops are starting to flee. He has to quickly act. He's got to do something. And so what does he do? He doesn't wait for Samuel. Instead, he takes matters into his own hands. He offers the sacrifice to try and secure God's blessing on the battle. And no sooner had he done that, than that Samuel turns up and he sees this and he says to Saul, what do you think you're doing? Uh, In fact, he says um, in verse 13, uh, to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God which, with which he commanded you. And for Samuel, this, this wasn't an issue of, um, you know, they need to make a sacrifice, someone's got to do it, so Saul, he's the man at the right place at the right time. It's got nothing to do with that. God had given a very clear word to Saul through Samuel the prophet, and Saul has disregarded it. Now Saul tries to blame Samuel. He says, the reason I did it is because you weren't here in time. But Samuel says, no, no, that's not the issue. The issue is one of obedience. And you, Saul, have disobeyed the Lord. Now we know from back in chapter 12 that kingship in Israel all hinged on obedience to God. Okay, That, that was the main thing. If the king had a, a list of, of his job description... It could really just come down to one thing. You must obey the Lord. Keep his commands. You do that, everything will go fine. And yet Saul doesn't do that. He disobeyed. And have a look at the um, result of that in verse 14. Samuel says to Saul, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So what Samuel's saying there is that Saul's kingdom isn't going to go on, which doesn't mean he'll stop being king straight away. It just means that he won't have a dynasty. So, for example, his son Jonathan won't get to become king because Saul's kingdom's going to end. And that's one of the great tragedies of Scripture because as we're going to see, Jonathan will make a great king. But Saul's ruined that because he disregarded the word of the Lord. And so what we're supposed to see in chapter 13 is this warning sign that this Saul, okay, remember he's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a good looking guy. Everyone thought, wow, what a great king. But what we're meant to see is, no, no, there's some warning signs here. This guy isn't cut out for the job because he's someone who in the heat of the moment His true character is revealed that he's not someone who submits to the Lord. This is someone who thinks he knows better than God. Someone who, uh, when he's under pressure, will take matters into his own hands and actually trust his own instincts rather than the word of the Lord. See, what we see, it's not the pressure that forced Saul to disobey. It's the pressure that revealed what this guy is really like. And that's actually worth reflecting on for our own lives because what happens in your life when you're under pressure? You know, when something goes wrong or when you're stressed out, what do you see? Because it's in those moments that you actually get to see what you're really like. You get to see, are you someone who obeys the Lord? Or are you someone who, you know, takes matters into your own hands? Someone who who will go for convenience rather than obedience? or someone who will trust in your feelings rather than in faithfulness to the Lord. So it's in the, it's in the moments when we're under pressure, when we're stressed out, that's when what's in our hearts is exposed. And we can see, are we someone who patiently trusts in the Lord, continues to obey him, or we go and do our own thing? Well, that was certainly the case with Saul. And so he was a tragedy in motion. Because his heart wasn't in submission to the Lord, and therefore his kingship, it was destined to fail. So that's the first scene. that's the scene of disobedience. The second scene is in chapter 14 in the first 23 verses. And here we see this contrast between courage and fear. So courage and fear. And it begins again with Jonathan. Jonathan, again, takes the initiative. He attacks a uh, Philistine garrison. And uh, in verse 1 of chapter 14, if you have a look at that, notice at the end of that verse it says that Jonathan didn't tell his father about that. Which again, it makes you start wondering what's going wrong. Like surely if Saul is the king, he should know about whether his son is going to attack a Philistine outpost. But it seems as though Jonathan has some doubts about Saul's input. So he doesn't even bother telling Saul about what he's planning to do. <clears throat> so we can see there's, there's some issues between Jonathan and Saul already um, at the outset. But what is Saul doing while Jonathan's out attacking Philistines? Have a look at verse 2. It says, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. And listen to who he has with him. He has a Ahijah, the son of Ahatab, Ichabod's brother. Remember Ichabod, that little kid who was um, born when they lost the ark and he was named Ichabod because that meant the glory has departed. Well, here's Ichabod's... Uh, uh, who is it? His grandson, I think. Anyway, I didn't do the maths, but... <laughs> Anyway, it's from, it's from Eli's line. And what we know about Eli's line is that that was rejected. That was a priestly line that was rejected because of corruption in Shiloh. And so you have this picture of Saul, whose kingdom is rejected, and he has, uh, he's assisted by a priest whose you know, priesthood is rejected. And here they are doing nothing, sitting around in a cave, scared of the army. Uh, and why, why is it that Saul is hanging back like this? Why does he stay on the outskirts when he should be a man of action? It's because he doesn't have what Jonathan has. And what does Jonathan has, have? Jonathan has courage. And it's this courage that's fueled by his faith. And you see that in verse 6, which is the main verse of the section, where Jonathan says to the armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So that's Jonathan's faith. Okay, where does he get the courage to attack? From the Lord, who he says can save by many or few. See, nothing can hinder God from saving. And Jonathan says it may be that God will do that for us. Notice how he doesn't assume or presume on God. He doesn't say, you know, God must do what I say because I'm calling the shots. No, he recognizes God's freedom or God's sovereignty, saying God might act through us. Uh, But there's only one way to find out, isn't there? How do you know if God will work through you? You know, if you want to do something for the Lord, how do you know that he will work through you? You know by going and doing it (laughs) getting on with the task which is what Jonathan does. And what happens? God does work through Jonathan and his armour bearer. Uh, they climb down one side of the cliff and up the other side. <clears throat> then they start attacking Philistines. They kill 20 of them. And it would seem as though the Philistines were like, um, yikes, all these people are coming. You know, they see two guys and they assume that there must be a whole army behind them. So they start panicking and the panic just spreads through the army. And it, it goes on, it actually says that, uh, that the panic turned into an earthquake. Uh, where was that? That was end of verse 15. The earthquake. And uh, what does that mean? It seems like God caused an earthquake at the time. And so already the Philistines are panicking because of these soldiers coming upon them. And then the earth starts shaking, which turned into a great panic. And in all of that panic, they got so confused that they started to strike each other down. It's like they just started running around, waving their swords about, killing each other. And then the next thing that happens, we hear that there's all these Israelites who would actually join the Philistine army. You know, they were traitors. But in all of this panic and confusion, they switched back to the Israelite side, and they also attacked the Philistines. Then Saul gets involved. He comes out of hiding along with all of the Israelite troops. They attack the Philistines and it ends in verse 23 by saying that the Lord saved Israel that day. Okay, So this was an army which was small, completely outnumbered and yet they have a victory over this innumerable sea of Philistines. And so it was just like Jonathan said, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And that's where Jonathan's courage came from. That's the courage that got him up that cliff and fighting in that fight. And it's such a great lesson on what God can do in the face of um, hopeless odds. Okay, This is what God can do. And again, there's an application for us because um, perhaps you've wondered to yourself one day, uh, you know, what, what can I possibly do for God? You know, what difference can I make in the world for Jesus? You know, what can I do for the kingdom? Or as a church, we might think, you know, what can we possibly do in Australia today? What, what difference can we make in our society? You know, how, how can we spread the gospel? I mean, look at us, we're just so small and and um, not very good at it. So how can we make any difference? And the answer is here, in what Jonathan says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so what would it look like if we actually believed that? That nothing can hinder God. He can work through us. What would that look like? We would actually do the work and see what God does, see how God uses us. See where courage comes from? It comes from faith in the Lord, believing that he is powerful and able. So that's the courage of faith. That's the courage that we see in Jonathan, something that seems to be uh, missing in King Saul. Now that brings us to the third scene, uh, which is from verse 24 of chapter 14. And uh, here you would expect the, the scene would be like a big party. You know, they've beaten the Philistines. Finally, once and for all, everyone's celebrating. You would think that would be the scene, but no, that's not the scene. The, the, the victory is completely ruined. Why? Because of Saul's stupidity. And so this is the third scene. The third scene is Saul's stupidity. And it starts with, uh, it says that the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on them, the people saying... Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. And so none of the the people had tasted food. Now why on earth would Saul make a vow like that? Here they are, they're fighting a battle. The main thing you need is fuel for the fight. You can't swing a sword if you're starving hungry. And uh, for some reason Saul has put this oath on the people which prevented them from eating why? Who knows? Maybe he was superstitious. Maybe he thought that that would be one way of kind of twisting God's arm to get God to work more for them. But whatever his reasons for doing it, it was completely foolish. And again, there's a contrast with Jonathan because Jonathan didn't hear about the oath. He was off attacking Philistines while Saul was trembling in a cave. And so, when they're walking through this forest, as they're going after the Philistines, they come across some honey in a in a log on the ground. And Jonathan takes his staff and he, and he dips it in, and he has it like it's like a, a lo- lollipop, and that gives him the sugar hit that he needs to keep fighting. It says that his eyes brightened, you know, it revived his strength. And the troops, they see him doing that. They're like, Jonathan, you can't do that. Don't you realize that your father put an oath on us? We're not allowed to eat. And Jonathan, in verse 29, I'll paraphrase it. He says, that's just plain stupid. (laughs) Here we are fighting a battle. That's going to limit the victory. We're not going to be able to complete it. And uh, what ends up happening, the, the troops got so hungry that when um, they um, attacked some Philistines, it says in verse 32 that they pounced on the spoil, they took the sheep and the oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and, and ate them with the blood. It's like they just started eating animals, and, uh, which was against the um, ceremonial law. Uh, and so we see that, you know, what foolishness. Here they were on the cusp of the ultimate victory against the Philistines, and Saul ruins it all, through this stupid vow. The folly doesn't stop there, though, because in verse 37, Saul seeks guidance from his rejected priest. He wants to know how to complete this battle. There's no answer from the Lord. Surprise, surprise. Now Saul takes that as an indication that there's sin in the camp, so he, he draws lots to find out who is responsible. The lot falls on Jonathan. And uh, Jonathan tells Saul about the honey that he ate. And uh, you would expect Jonathan to say, but, you know, it's not my fault I broke the oath. I wasn't aware that there was one. You can't hold me responsible. He doesn't argue like that. Instead, what he says to Saul implies that Saul's vow was idiotic. That's the subtext of what he says, that that, that was a stupid vow. He says, what, I ate some honey and now I must die? Hey, okay, That's ridiculous. But Saul, he wants to save face. He's made this big stand and he says that anyone who eats is cursed, cursed to die, and so he decides Jonathan has to be put to death. Now you can imagine the feeling among the troops. Jonathan's the guy who's brought this victory about and now his dad's going to kill him, kill his own son. And so there was absolute outrage over that. They wouldn't allow Saul to do it. The troops rebel against their king. Do you see how it's all just falling apart around Saul? His leadership, it's so inadequate. It just leads to trouble. He was the troubler of Israel, which is a phrase that Elijah uses later on in the Bible for King Ahab, who who was a complete unbeliever. Saul brings trouble on Israel, as Jonathan says, all because of his foolishness. Now, there is a big surprise at the end of chapter 14 because we have this um, section from verse 47 that talks about Saul's other victories uh, throughout his kingship over the other nations. And you have to remember that the Israelites wanted Saul as their king because they wanted someone to go out and fight their battles. And Saul was able to do that. He had many victories. And so you get to the end of verse uh, chapter 14 and you have this kind of like an outsider's look. What did it look like as Saul being king? He was victorious. He did a lot of good things. And yet, having just read chapters 13 and 14, we know the inside story. We know what it's really like, or what Saul is really like, that he's a man, well, that he's really, his kingship is just a tragedy in motion. It's destined to fail because there's a failure in Saul. And what is his failure? It's not just character flaws. It's not just leadership problems. The real failure was actually the absence of faith. See, Saul was a man who, who in the end, didn't trust in the Lord. He trusted in himself. He trusted in his own strength, which is why he was fearful in the face of a massive army. He trusted in his own thinking, which is why he would take matters into his own hands with that situation with the sacrifice and with the foolish vow. So he trusted in himself, which is the very definition of a fool. And the key theme in these two chapters is this contrast between faith and folly. Okay, Jonathan, Jonathan's faith, Saul's folly. And Jonathan, you know, he is the leader that you would want. He's the one you would want as a king. Now, to us, it really seems like a, a huge tragedy that Jonathan was robbed of the throne because of the foolishness of his father. And yet from everything we learn about Jonathan, we can see that Jonathan, that didn't bother him at all. He wasn't worried about whether he was got to be king or not. For Jonathan, serving the Lord was the reward in, in itself. He, he didn't just serve God so that it would lead to something greater. Okay? He wasn't in it for what he could get out of it. He was in it for the Lord. He wanted to serve the Lord and that was the reward itself for Jonathan. And so we have this contrast between two leaders but what we do see is how important it is for God's people to be ruled by a faithful king. A king who trusts in the Lord, who obeys the Lord, not someone who compromises or hides in the face of danger or ruins his victory through his own stupidity. And so we're really left wishing that Jonathan could be the king. Now imagine Israel under Jonathan. Imagine a king like that, leading the people in victory, not ruining it. That's the king you want. But it was never to be. And yet there's some good news, though, for us. Because the story doesn't end with Saul, but another king will come. Yes, it will be David. David was referenced there in verse in chapter 13 with the man after God's own heart. And yet, where is this story really pointing us to? The kingship. Who is the real king of God's people? It's Jesus. And see Jesus, he is Jesus is the Jonathan that Israel never had. Because everything about Jonathan pointed to Jesus. You know, Jonathan's faithfulness, his wisdom, his courage, it all points us to the Lord Jesus and, and the king that Jesus is for us that he comes in and, and like Jonathan single-handedly brings the victory but the victory that Jesus brings for us is far greater than getting rid of a few pesky Philistines uh, Jesus actually saves us from the real enemies which is our own sin and Satan and death itself and Jesus has conquered those enemies for us and he's risen to be our king. And so in light of Jesus' coming, the main application of this passage is not try really hard to be like Jonathan and try really hard not to be like Saul. That's not the main application of this passage. The main application of this passage is actually be like Jonathan's armor-bearer. Be like Jonathan's armor-bearer. Why that? Well, if you look back at chapter 14, verse 7, Notice how the armor-bearer says to Jonathan, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I am with you, heart and soul. See, if Jonathan is appointed to Jesus, then the main application is we've got to be like that armor-bearer. We've got to say to Jesus, I am with you, heart and soul. I will follow you wherever you lead that's what we've got to do because that's Jesus is the king worth following and he calls us to be with him heart and soul and when we do that when we trust in him and follow him when we're with him heart and soul what happens we become like Jonathan we become courageous we become wise we become faithful that's how Christ saves us when we trust and follow him so there you go that's that's Chapter 13 and 14 is calling us to trust in the true and better Jonathan, the Lord Jesus, the the real, the true King.